Before we get started, we'd love for you to take a survey that would help us improve the Building a Story Brand podcast. Just go to buildingastorybrand.com slash survey and fill out the survey by December 31st. If you do, you will be registered to win an Amazon.com gift card. Fill out the survey. It's going to help us make an even better podcast next year. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. J.J., Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. (laughs) It's Christmas Day, or at least this thing is coming out on Christmas Day. Right Uh, now, it's August 3rd. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. It's almost Christmas, and it's Christmas for you if you're getting this, because it's on Christmas Day. How many of you, raise your hand if Mm -hmm. you are driving home Mm -hmm. or driving to somewhere to celebrate Christmas? Raise both hands. Raise both hands if you're driving Raise both hands. If you are, we are honored to be with Uh, you on such a blessed day. I love getting to spend Christmas with the people I love. (laughs) (laughs) And we definitely love our listeners. Honestly, Merry Christmas to you guys. Christmas is one of the few things that will actually pull me out of business headspace. Yeah, just to be present. Yeah, yeah. it really is. And just, you know, my faith, just celebrating the birth of Christ and celebrating the ability to be together and celebrating. We actually are going to see Betsy's family. So as you're listening to this, we are in New Orleans, Louisiana, (laughs) the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain in Covington. We are probably sitting around tree. My brother-in-law probably has his guitar out. We are singing probably Cat Stevens songs, John Denver songs at the <laughs> top of our Christmas. lungs. Classic Christmas. Classic Christmas. Children are running around everywhere. It's just a fantastic time of year. Yeah. You, on the other hand, are about to experience this because you're driving somewhere. But until then, let's get some work done. Yes. <laughs> so, okay, let's get back now to Now, think yeah. about how much debt you went into this Christmas, and let's make some of your money back. <laughs> We've got some great interviews, and they are all designed, of course, to help you grow your business and inspire you and help you have a great 2018 and pay back some of that cash. That you, <laughs> Just showed up for all those gifts. That's, that's exactly it, because you got the uh, hoverboard for uh, your, your nephew. I want that. I know. Me too. I would just, I think I'd die on it. Oh, I know I would. Yeah, I'd crash. 100%. Anyway, it is the part two Mm -hmm. of the best of 2017 interviews from the Building a Story Brand podcast. Part Mm -hmm. deuce. Part deux. Duh. (laughs) The first is Blake Mykoski. Yes. He is the founder of Tom's Shoes. Yep. He is an unbelievable, inspiring story. He has started many businesses and Mm -hmm. sold them. He is still with Tom. Even though he sold Tom's, he's still the, he doesn't call himself CEO. He calls himself chief shoe giver (laughs) at Tom's Shoes. But he's an incredibly inspired story. JJ, he talks about the three most important hires you need to make to grow your business. Yeah. I wish I'd have heard this a long time ago because one of them is a salesperson, and we didn't hire a salesperson. To way late. (laughs) Yeah, for years. Yeah. I mean, we grew anyway because we're all pretty good at sales and we're great at marketing. Yeah. But who should you be hiring? I mean, what people can you put in place in 2018 to grow your company and get closer to your giant vision? Here's a little bit of my conversation with Blake McCoskey. Walk me through the first three critical, important hires that you made. Who were they? You don't have to name their names, but what position did you bring around you to sort of staff your liabilities or to help you? Well, first is just someone to help you do stuff, right? So my first employee who became, you know, basically ran all the operations for Tom's and I met him on a Craigslist ad and convinced him to not... You bought a lawnmower from him? and (laughs) Yeah, literally. I mean, I was going to intern for the summer and then go to graduate school and I convinced him just to stay and he was with me for, gosh, 
seven or eight years and then now he's off traveling around the world with his wife and you know really doing some interesting things but I think that first it's just like you just need body to help you like you need to not be alone and you're an entrepreneur you need and also he had some I didn't realize this at the time but he had some skills that maybe I didn't have around operations and really being detail oriented and it came in really helpful when we were working on all of our logistics and stuff so first was just someone to help me. The second one was, and this is a really important one, is someone who's good at sales. I think I'm good at communicating a vision, in essence, selling the vision or selling the big idea. But in terms of like block and tackling sales and having that persistence and calling on people and, and making sure that you're, you know, have strategy around it and you have the credibility, like that was not my passion or skill set. So the first kind of I would say senior employee that we really had to pay like a real salary to was like a really great salesperson that had worked at Nike and and other footwear companies. And that was a really early hire. How how many people were that on was, staff? I think, I think I was employee number nine, eight or nine. So I had the first like seven or eight employees were basically all interns that graduated to employee status, and that was just because they were had the positive attitudes and they were working hard and they were doing everything right. from packing boxes to calling press. So sales, I mean, that's almost like a, the second or third real position that you brought on was you needed somebody to sell this stuff. Yeah, because I mean, I was doing it first all myself, but then, you know, once you start to get like real accounts, like department stores and stuff, there's a lot of detail and, and kind of industry knowledge and retail math and all that stuff you need to know. So I would say in a lot of organizations, like first is like someone just to help carry the load. Second, someone to help grow the business, so that's sales. And then the third person is to kind of make sure that like what you sell, you can actually deliver. And that was my you know, head of production who would really make sure that we were delivering good product. Okay, now I want to go back to Bain buys half your company. You're still 50% owner and you're still the – you're not CEO. You call yourself chief shoe deliverer. Chief shoe giver. Well, chief shoe giver. So chief shoe giver, I've always had that title since we started because I think titles are ridiculous. So I allowed every single person, I think out of the first, up until we had about 150 employees, and then my HR director convinced me to change my philosophy a little bit. But at least for the first 150, everyone got to choose their own title. Because the thing is, a title is mainly is a tool to do business with the outside world. It should not be a tool to manage the inside culture and world, I think. Because I think a leader can be anyone, no matter what their title is. And if you've read that book by Robin Sharma, I think it's a great one if your readers haven't. What's the name of that book? Uh, leader Without a Title. So my philosophy was, is like, give yourself a title that will allow you to do your job the best. And so if you need to be a VP of marketing, because that's going to allow you to get the outside world to take your phone call, then be a VP of marketing. If you can just be you know, sales dude, then be sales dude. And so we had all kinds of crazy You had titles. 17 CEOs at one time, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, we had, <laughs> it was amazing that when you actually gave people the responsibility and told them to choose a title and they knew their peers were going to see it, very few people inflated their title. Yeah, so I would imagine really so, yeah. Interesting. So mine was always chief shoe giver because I felt like that was my main purpose in starting the business was to give shoes. And so I should be the chief shoe giver. So I've been chief shoe giver long before the Bain transaction. So now in the world of official titles, I'm the chairman of the board and founder, and I'm perfectly happy with those two titles. All right, if you want the rest of the conversation with Blake, 
Download episode 61 of the Building a Story Brand podcast. Next, JJ, Charles Duhigg. Yes. You think maybe he's the smartest guy we interviewed in 2017? He might be. You have to kind of sit for a second. Right, yeah. because you know, we astronaut Jerry Leninger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we had some Harvard business folks. Mm-hmm. You talk to me a lot. I talk to you a lot. So that's yeah. absolutely true. Uh-huh. So, but I mean, even with that, yes, I yes. would still say Charles is smarter than me. That's right. And he got his Pulitzer before you or after? Did he get his Be- before? He got his yeah. before. Everybody and after. Everybody has gotten it before me. So <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of that's an easy answer. Yes, everybody who's gotten a Pulitzer got it before me. He got a Pulitzer for his writing in the New York Times on economic stuff. Yeah, he wrote stuff. on economic stuff. Yeah, that was the title. And of they the said you get a Smarka Award. <laughs> You are so smart. I just love how you talk about numbers. He has a book called Smarter, Faster, Better, and it's his second book, and I thought it was fantastic. He talks about cognitive tunneling and how much it's costing us. You've been looking at your smartphone, going from data to data to data, being overly stimulated. It's costing you productivity. Here's a little bit of my conversation with Charles Duhigg. My favorite way of like suggesting the last time you've had cognitive tunneling is, is you know when you're like driving down the freeway and you're going to speed limit, right? You're not speeding, but you see a cop car out of the corner of your eye and you suddenly hit the brakes, right? right? Or you're, right. you're at home and you're making dinner for your kids and you're talking to your spouse and you suddenly get a text message from your boss and like you immediately type a response and hit send. And then as soon as you hit send, you think to yourself like, gosh, I really wish I had waited a couple of minutes and given that another read before hitting send. Cognitive tunneling is our brain's natural way of dealing with too much information or, or sort of too many stimuli. And what we do is because our brain evolved in a setting where too much information meant you need to choose really quickly to to focus on what could be most dangerous, we tend to focus on whatever is the most obvious stimuli right in front of our eyes, right? right. That's why you like hit the brake is because you see the police car. That's the most obvious threatening stimuli. And so you react to it immediately, almost without thinking. And what we know is that in the state of nature, right, if you're like being chased by predators, that's a great reaction. In your kitchen or your office where there's emails coming in and people stopping by to ask if they can ask you a question and someone inviting you to a meeting and your phone is ringing, in an office, it's often disastrous to get drawn into this cognitive tunnel because essentially what happens is you stop making decisions, right? You simply start reacting to what's around you. Now, what we know is that the way that you put yourself back in charge, the way that you put yourself in a situation where you start making choices again instead of simply reacting, is oftentimes by building what psychologists refer to as mental models, Hmm. which is essentially the act of telling ourselves a story about what we think should be happening as it's occurring. So, for instance, a lot of what we know about mental models comes from studying people like firefighters. Right. The best firefighters are firefighters who almost have like ESP. It's like they walk into a burning building and they know when something's going to go wrong before it does. Yeah. And when researchers have talked to them, those firefighters always say the same type of thing, which is they say, you know, before I walk into a burning room, I kind of like tell myself a story literally as I walk in about what I expect to see. And I, I tell myself the story that like there's going to be flames in the right corner and there's a staircase in the left corner. And there's going to be even more flames above the left corner because there's like an air gap underneath. And then when I walk in, I have this story in my head and I compare reality to the story in my head. And, and I notice that, for instance, you know, flames in the right corner, got that right. 
uh, there's fewer flames in the left corner than I expected. And something in my brain says, okay, pay attention to the left corner. Something is wrong there. Don't go near those stairs. Huh. And that's kind of where this like ESP comes from. And what we found is again and again and again, the people who tell themselves stories about their day, who build those mental models, they seem to be more successful. In fact, there was a study that was done of Fortune 500 executives, and they found that the executives that got promoted the fastest, one of the habits that they all shared was that they tended to imagine their days with just like half a degree more specificity than their peers. You're kidding. So literally, they would, they would sit down in the morning and just say, okay, I've got, you know, these are my meetings today. This one's going to feel like this. I'm probably going to be able to communicate this. This person's probably going to be frustrated. Exactly. And, okay, now go back. Why does that matter? I'm, I'm trying to figure out why that gives them a competitive advantage. What's happening? Is it because they're more prepared and they, they won't react? Well, I think part of it is preparedness, right? And it's not even like they're sitting down and doing it for five minutes. They, yeah. they tend to be doing it like in their car as they're driving, right? All of us build mental models to some degree. It's just that they push themselves to build mental models that are a little bit more specific than everyone else. Huh. And the reason why it works is because, first of all, yeah, it helps you prepare. But secondly, when you're in those meetings, there's so much stimuli that it's hard for your brain to figure out what it should focus on and what it can safely ignore. Unless you have a story in your head that your brain is constantly comparing reality to. So if you have that story in your head, when something looks out of whack, when something looks unexpected, your attention goes to that subconsciously or near unconsciously without you having to think about it. Whereas if something's unfolding exactly as you expected, you don't get distracted by it, right? Or more importantly, you're thinking about what am I going to do between like nine and 10 o'clock? And it's like, oh, I want to get that memo written, you know, and I need to do X and Y and Z. So you have a plan that makes it easier to start. But secondarily, like you sit down and things start unfolding as you expect. And then suddenly an email arrives that hmm. normally you should ignore. It doesn't fit into the story inside your head. And so your brain uh... is less likely to be distracted by that email. Because you have a plan that you're following. That's not what the story was about that we wrote this morning. It's about this. Exactly. It just helps you know what to focus on. You chose the story. If you want to listen to the rest of my conversation with Charles Duhigg, download episode 68. I highly recommend you do so. Episode 68 of the Building a Story Brand podcast. Now we had a special fun gift kind of toward the end of the year. It was Trisha Rose Burt, a professional storyteller. We are called StoryBrand. Everything that we teach has to do with 2,000 years of best practices on how to captivate other people's attention. Yeah. We apply that to marketing, but we talk about story inside and out. You come to our workshop, and it's all about story structure, yeah. but rarely do we talk about story on the podcast. Yeah. We talk about marketing and messaging <laughs> yeah. and business, but really, our secret weapon is story, and yeah. so I love this episode because you have a professional yep. storyteller. And not she only, gives just real practical... Very practical yeah. advice yeah. on even just, you know, hey, I know you're, if you're driving home for Christmas... Use her advice at dinner tonight. Yeah. (laughs) Because she talks about how to really get everybody's attention and tell a great story. Uh, Not only that, she applies a lot of what she says in the full interview to growing your business and clarifying your message. Here's a clip from my conversation with Trisha Roseberg. Okay, we're going to get into sort of your personal, and, mm. and maybe it's ancient, I don't know, but your personal sort of 3X structure. We're going to get into how-to It is here. ancient. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get into how-to, tell an interesting story. But I want to issue a challenge to everybody listening. Tonight at dinner, tomorrow at dinner, sometime in the next seven days, tell a story. You don't even yeah. have to announce I'm telling a story. Just be at dinner and say, something funny happened. 
yeah. and try to do what Trisha is about to teach us to do and see the response. Yeah. How does that sound? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are we yeah, all in? Yeah, yeah. Raise your yeah, hand. Yeah, yeah, Put yeah. your hand back on the steering okay, wheel. I'm raise raising your hand my again. hand. There I'm we go. My hand. Okay. We're all in. Okay, I want to know, how do we tell great stories? You've got a three-act structure. I do. And it does follow, you know, basically most, the ancient yeah, three-act structure. It's worded a little bit differently. But will you go through part one? There is a difference between a story and an anecdote. What's the difference? Change. The transformation yeah. of something yeah. or the character. So you can say, I was great, I went to the store and I was great, and then I came home and I was still great. None of that is interesting at all. There has to be a trans... There has to be some kind of a And by the time I got home, I was a different person. Yeah. I mean, I realized And, and even if it's a subtle change, and you can't be... It doesn't have to be something you know monumental, but just let me know there was a change and tell me why you made that change. And almost every story follows that... It's not a formula, but that sort of pattern, you've got... King George and the King's speech, and he's weeping at the beginning. He mm-hmm. can't live up to his father's legacy. He mm-hmm. doesn't have what it takes. They've chosen the wrong person. The country has been strapped with a crazy king, and by the end, he delivers a exactly. wonderful speech. He's a different person. Yeah. Luke Skywalker doesn't know if he has what it takes to be a Jedi. In the end, he's got a reward, and it's proven. And we're vested in that. Everyone wants to root for someone. We really do. I think mm. we want to root for people. And so, But if you don't have that change, it's not a very particularly interesting story. Do you think story. we're vicariously living through those characters? And by that, I mean, do you think all human beings like stories that are mostly about transformation because they want to transform themselves? Possibly. You know, I think a lot of times when we talk about telling stories and we're coaching people, it's people may not understand the situation you're in, Mm -hmm. but they'll understand the feeling. Hmm. So mm-hmm. oh, that's not, right. That's why a soccer mom will go. Moneyball was amazing. I felt like it was a story about me. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> the guy manages a baseball team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she goes, "It's exactly what it's like to manage kids." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, in my one woman show, I do this thing where I, you know, it's about a southern woman told to be a particular way, and I careen out of control and become something different, right? Right. And there's a scene in there where I go through all the shoulds I was raised with. You know, I should be appropriate. I shouldn't draw attention to myself. I should, you know, blah blah blah. These should. And one of the most dramatic was I had a, a university professor who was from Egypt, a man, PhD, mm-hmm. in charge of international students. And he said, everything you said resonated with me. It was really my life. I was like, <laughs> yeah, okay. So I'm, you're from Egypt. <laughs> I'm from this South. So you what, get this. How is, affirming is that? It was amazing. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And I had no idea. I just wrote it. You just write your truth. And somebody out there is going, that's mine too. There's a common thread. That's mine too. Here's the other thing. I'm kind of really going off track here. But the more specific you get in a story, the more universal it becomes. The more specific you are, way more. You know that from writing your books. Uh-huh. You want to share that one detail that everybody else can fill in the Absolutely. gaps. Absolutely. I mean, I have the scene. You all saw it when I was a dancero in high school. And we danced with the band, right? Mm-hmm. I have had so many people come up to me and say, mm-hmm. I was at this, I was that. I mean, they, no one, they weren't dancers, but they immediately were in an it awkward goes all place the way in back. high school. We had Luke Laird on. He's written 21, I think, number one country hits. And he has one little line in a song where he's across a field looking at the high school football stadium uh, with the lights on. And I mean, there ain't nobody who's heard that line who didn't go right back. They know exactly where the homecoming yeah, yeah, queen yeah, yeah. is. She rejected them. Oh, man, <laughs> yeah. I'm already there. But it's a genius to find that. Mm-hmm. Well, John Steinbeck, Lenny walked with his palms facing backwards. You fill in your brain. Mm-hmm. He has a mental disability. Yeah. And yeah. everything else fills in, and it's one line, but it's a specific detail. It's a specific one. It's the gesture. It's the look. It's that as soon as you make it specific, then it becomes universal. If you want that full conversation, go to episode 71 of the Building a Story Brand podcast. 
one of the most fun conversations I had all you year. You loved this. I you really loved this. did. And you talked about this for weeks afterwards. Well, it was not too long after Trump was elected, and he was saying some kind of jerky things. Back then, he wasn't the kind, just tender-hearted grandpa of a man he is now. <laughs> he was really kind of rough around the edges, and we were all kind of going, is this real? Like, is this the future? Is this what we're dealing with now? And so we had a guy on the podcast who's a Stanford professor. His name is Robert Sutton, and he wrote a book called The A-Hole Survival Guide, except he actually spells it out. Word, because yeah. we're a family podcast, mm-hmm. and today is the day of child Jesus. Of child Jesus, baby Jesus. <laughs> it's baby Jesus day. But we're family podcast, so yeah. we can't say Keep the whole thing. Keep but anyway, clean. he just talks about jerks yeah. and how to avoid them, how to deal with them, how to interact with them. Incredibly practical advice, not yeah. just for the full-on jerks, but for the people who are just annoying or trying to get under your skin. Yeah, They're really wanting to wrestle with you. And if you wrestle with them, they're going to win because you're not a wrestler. They're a wrestler. Yes, exactly. They practice this. This is how they live. It's how they survive. So how do you get away from these guys? Here's a few tips from Robert Sutton. All right, let's get to strategies for dealing with these folks. First off, avoiding them. We obviously can't avoid all of them, but I would imagine you avoid the ones that you can. There's a set of strategies, and we've all been in the situation where as you navigate through, and let's focus on workplace, to me, it's like a toxic substance. Finding ways to avoid contact with them, because there's all this evidence that nasty behavior is incredibly contagious. In fact, one of the most reliable ways to get sick by jerks and turn into a jerk is to have a lot of contact with them. And so... I have a whole different set of sort of um, a-hole avoidance strategies. One is, and so many of us work in open offices now, if you can do anything to get just a little further away from them, a few feet, a few extra desks where you're sitting, it has a huge effect. In fact, there's a couple of researchers, they tracked 2,000 workers in open offices for um, a couple of years. And what they found was that if you were within 25 feet of a toxic person, you were likely to catch the disease and likely to be fired. There's also an upside to that. If you're near somebody who's a superstar, you're more likely to perform better yourself. So what you want to do is find a star who isn't a jerk and sit closer to him. (laughs) So one of the other sort of classic strategies, and, and I've done this myself, is to find ways, for example, if you know you're going to be in a meeting with somebody who's nasty, try to have as few meetings as possible with them. Try to have them as short as possible. And one of the things I'm a big believer in, and maybe it's because I've been in academia so long where we definitely have our share, is that it depends how your personality is. Leaving early when you can't stand it anymore or getting there late is sometimes a good idea to protect your soul. So literally avoiding exposure to it. And one of my favorite set of techniques that I talk about in the book. I know all these organizations that have these systems, and you may know this too, is that they have, I call them early a-hole warning systems. So what happens is, and the classic thing is the boss's executive assistant who will warn everybody, and, and I know multiple firms where this happens, that the boss is on the way and also warn people that he or she is in an especially bad mood and you should be really careful and maybe avoid contact with them. So the set of strategies there, and I certainly have used them in in my life, are trying to find ways to avoid contact with them, brevity, intensity, things like that. I believe you. And as soon as I figure out somebody's kind of manipulative or deceptive or they're a bully or they... I've gotten them out of my life. I've done that for about 10 years But here's the thing. I have no skill in actually going head-to-head with them. I really don't. And the other thing is you realize they like it when you get down in the mud and wrestle with them. 
it depends on the nature of the jerk, but yes, definitely some like it. Absolutely. They're trying to get under your skin. Yes. So I don't want to go too far into theory, but there's an interesting difference between people who are Machiavellian and people who are narcissists. Okay. So Machiavellian people are really, really manipulative, but their perspective, and this is an important difference is, and these are the people who's literally their brains light up when you start like arguing with them and you're being hostile. And one of the main reasons is that if you're nice to them, they think that you're a pushover. So those are the kind of people who like to wrestle around in the mud. By the way, I don't think Jobs was a narcissist. I think Jobs was Machiavellian. And in a constructive way, he liked when people argued with him. If you were a doormat, he didn't respect you. The other side, are, I'm going to try to stay as far away from politics as possible. But people who are narcissists, what they want, they have very thin skins and they want constant flattery. And they don't like to wrestle. They like to have people kiss up constantly. And I think that we've all had, and I'll go back to you know the original person who really motivated me to write this book. And it's also important because it was a woman, not a man. This is a person who is just a classic narcissist that what she wants is for you to flatter her constantly. And she just wants to talk about how wonderful she is. And so arguing with her isn't that useful because she just has such a thin skin, especially criticizing her. So I guess I'm doing some sort of a-hole analysis here, but that's one part of it. But you said something I want to get back to, which is really important. There's a chapter in the book about it. I don't know about you, but from what I can tell, you got clients, I got clients, we all got clients, this is part of it too, that if you are in, in bad relationships, work relationships, relationships with clients, to protect yourself, there are times when you just have to cut it off. And I don't believe that you should just walk out the door and, and quit because you, you got to protect your family, your career, and do it in a way with, where there's some class. But if you get in a situation where you're stuck with somebody who is a jerk, finding a way to get out of the relationship in the situation is really important. One of my favorites. He's such a non-jerk of a guy. Yeah. He's everything you want he's him to be. He's brilliant. He, yeah, he absolutely is brilliant. Episode 59, if you want the whole conversation. One of our absolute favorites. Yes. Episode 62, it's Molly Fletcher. Molly. I love Molly. I do too. Yeah, we all kind of have a crush on Molly. <laughs> yeah, I love her. She she's is the so female Jerry Maguire. Yeah. It's like half a billion dollars in contracts. Yeah, amazing. That she's negotiated yeah. for athletes. Yeah. And she's an incredible negotiator, and she actually talks to us about how to negotiate and yes. win a negotiation. She gives us four critical strategies. Two of them are in this clip. The other two, you're going to have to download the full episode. But yes. listen, here's what's happening. You're driving to your holiday party. There's going to be a white elephant thing going on. <laughs> you're going to get something, but your brother-in-law over there has got the thing that you want. Yeah. And you're going to need these two things mm -hmm. in order to mm -hmm. get... That battery-operated toaster. Yes, battery-operated toaster. <laughs> yeah, the famous battery-operated toaster, toaster, toaster you can take anywhere. Camping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you're going to need some negotiating tips. We've got them for you here. Molly's got them for you. Here's Molly telling us how to get that toaster. There's a bunch of keys to negotiating. You've got a book on that. But can you just give us maybe four tips, four strategies we need to remember when we're negotiating? Yeah, and I'd say, too, you know, we, we have an opportunity to negotiate every day, right? I think that yeah. there are more opportunities to negotiate than maybe sometimes people realize. And so I would encourage people to recognize that it's all around us. It's every day. It's not just our salaries and our bonuses, right? Yeah. I mean, it can be lawnmowers. It can be the paint guy. It can be the yard guy. It can be, I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. Well, so, you're, if you're a good negotiator, even if you don't you own the company. You want to hire me? Yeah. <laughs> but literally, like one of my guys came back and, you know, I knew that this company wanted X amount. And he came back and said, well, we got $40,000 off of that. 
he became very yeah, valuable in my eyes. Absolutely. So even if you're in middle management, oh. you go back to your boss and say, yeah, I actually cut $20,000 off of that and negotiate a little bit with them. Nobody's going to forget that if they're your boss. They're going to remember that. Absolutely, and no matter where you are in an organization, yeah, too, I abs- think. Yeah, if, I, I, you know, I believe it. Yeah. Okay, what's the first so, thing So, I mean, need? I think, first of all, you've got to really set the stage, right? So, yeah. I mean, I think you've got to make sure that you've got the foundation to be reasonable and realistic. I mean, the last thing you want to do is, you know, I can't go ask an NBA team right now to pay me $10 bucks a year. I mean, you know, I'm a 45-year-old female. I ain't getting it. <laughs> so, you need to be realistic in what you're asking for, and you've got to set the stage for that, which means I think you've got to do your research. So when we were negotiating player contracts, I need to make sure I got all the comparables on, if it was a second baseman, all the other second basemen in the league that had the same amount of service time as that athlete. And I would break down all those stats and look at those so that I was very well prepared for those difficult conversations. So you've got to have all your stuff squared away. You've got to set the stage, which to me is really important. And then I think you've got to connect. I think the interesting thing is, is a lot of people hear the word negotiation and they kind of cringe, right? Yeah, they think, yeah. oh, man, that's a really kind of – that's no fun. And to me, negotiation at the end of the day is about connection. It's because a people thing. It's a people thing. And, yeah, and that, by the way, is one of the things I think you should never sort of do online. Uh, you know, I think you always want to negotiate live if you care about getting the really, deal I've done. I've heard that a lot. Like, yeah. get on the plane. Go talk to them. Yeah, or if you have to be on the phone, that's okay, but absolutely not over email, whatever. Right. That, to me, doesn't work because you get so much back in the moments from the tone and the timing of the other person. So, to me, finding common ground is imperative. You've got to find a way to Is this all part connect. of framing? No, this is a different point. So, I okay. think, number one, you've got to set the stage. Number two, you've got to find common ground. In other words... What's a win for both of us here? What's a win for both of us? And I think, you know, it's little things like you've got to use the word we... Mm-hmm. I used to sit with GMs and say, you know, we want to keep him here, don't we? I mean, if we keep him here, the fans are happy. It's we. It's not, don't you want to keep him here? I mean, it's just the, those subtle things I think are right. key. And you want to connect, and, and I think you want to stay curious in those moments. So some people that are listening going, well, yeah, but this guy is so hard to connect with. It's just brutal. I think you've got to stay curious in those moments. So sometimes when we're trying to find common ground or connect, we may get defensive. I mean, there was a lot of times that I wanted to get up and walk out of the office or walk out of a room or whatever it might be. But in those moments, the more curious we can be, the more we can figure out what is their position? Why are they hanging their hat on this topic, this thought, this point, whatever it is? So I think you've got to stay curious so that you can connect. I would imagine a lot of people, when they go in and negotiate, they think of themselves automatically as adversarial. They and do. That's and that's a mistake. Absolutely. You right? want to, Yes. Because... You're, you're how looking can for you how get can, a deal done when you're yeah. not connected or you're sideways? Yeah. And so, how can I provide so much value for what you want that you're willing to pay for it? For sure. That you get a big return on this investment. Right. But to me, I mean, you know, having that relationship with GMs, with manufacturers, if it was a golfer, with teams, if it was a guy, is imperative. We don't have to be sideways to get deals done. And I think if you want to get a deal done with somebody and do more than one, Right? Mm-hmm. It's even more important to make sure that you connect. All right. That's actually episode 62. If you go download the episode, it says Chris Gilbo's. It's an awesome interview with Chris. We actually tacked on Molly, the four yeah. strategies and negotiation at the end of that episode. So don't get confused. Uh, just listen to the whole episode. Molly's at the end of that episode, but we liked it so much we actually included it in the top 10 of 2017. 
JJ, what an incredible year. So fun. Merry Christmas. You heading to New Jersey? Uh, no, you're going to Oregon. I'm going to Oregon. Yeah. Wow. You're going to see your family. Yes. So. Well, we're going to miss you around here. We're going to do um, fondue. That's our tradition. I remember that yeah, from last fondue, year. Christmas fondue. Which is wonderful with seven children under the age of six that are running around with plugged in hot oil. And uh, you're, you're, <laughs> your, your Instagram lights up every I year. I love Christmas. You absolutely do. JJ, if you were one character in the manger scene, I would mm. say that you are the angel hovering above uh, the barn. And I just want uh, to give you that gift. You know, it's a little thing I do every day. Just say <laughs> you, you just would name be, people who yeah, they would be. That's exactly and it. And you're the donkey. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's record, Dive Deep. Merry Christmas, Andrew, on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. Hey, here's a little gift from us. It's Andrew Bell's version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Have yourself a merry little Christmas Let your heart be light From now on our troubles will be out of sight Yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. Yeah.